0: Okay, turn with me to Luke chapter 9. We'll dive into the word together. Um, we have notes available out in the lobby. Those are, they're actually not just notes, but a life group discussion guide. You can use it with your family, with a life group, or just for personal study. I'm going to ask you a question. I brought Jericho up in the early service. My family was in the outside service this morning. Jericho's seven, and I said, okay, Jericho has a question for you all. What does it mean to glorify God? Or maybe we'll change it a little bit differently. Define the glory of God to Jericho, a seven-year-old. Now, could you do that? Because here's the challenge we run into when we get comfortable in the church and with our Christian terms, with our biblical or religious terms. We use them a lot. We kind of know them in context that at Fellowship Bible Church is to glorify God by making disciples in all nations. So obviously glorifying God is important. We see throughout Scripture the glory of God described. We would all describe God as glorious most likely. But what other context do we actually use that term? Do we use the term glory regularly of other contexts in 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 describing other parties other than god himself not not most of us some of us may occasionally but for the most part glory has become a term in the english language that most often happens within church discussions and so we have to know though what it means because here's luke 9 Luke 9, we are going through a long string of verses. If you pull up in your Bible, Luke from 28 to to the very end end of the chapter, verse 62, you're probably going to see it broken up into six or seven different sections with little subtitles along the way. And and that's helpful. But but we got to be careful that we don't just read Scripture as if Scripture was written in topical paragraphs. As if this story is all about... Jesus healing, and it has no relation to the story right in front of it or the story after it. This story is about this thing that Jesus said, and we don't know why he said it then. We don't know why exactly uh, he said that on that day in the context of that. No, no, no. We don't do that with Scripture. Luke in particular, as Luke edits together this book, which is a biography of Jesus, the Son of God. That's the setting of the book of Luke, a biography of a person, Name Jesus, who is the Messiah and the Son of God. Luke edits it together strategically. I'm not saying he changes the order of events, but he arranges the way he tells a story in such a way to tell a true story of what happened based on eyewitness accounts, but to bring these events into a thematic setting in which what we're going to see today is in verse 28 and following, we see a depiction, a demonstration of God's glory, and everything that follows builds off of the beauty of that glory. And we can't separate these little sections from each other. We can't pull one paragraph out and just say this paragraph stands alone, because Luke is building a case here that we live in the light of the glory of God. And this is what you need to know. And so today, our, our subject is the glory of God. We're going to see the glory of from above on display. We're going to see the glory below on this earth. And then, because God the Father says in the demonstration of the glory, listen to him, we're going to listen to the glorious one as he makes five key statements from that point on, coming to the end of the chapter nine. But first, we need to make a definition of the word glory, so we'll go a little bit Hebrew and a little bit Greek because glory is a word that appears both Old Testament, written in Hebrew, New Testament, written in Greek. Primary Hebrew word for glory is kabod. Now kabod, it brings up with it a primary sense of heaviness or weight. And so one definition of glory is a great weight, a great Heaviness that cannot be moved. And, And so when we read the Old Testament and we see the word glory show up, it shows up in context like when the nation is exiting out of Egypt and there is the glory of the Lord on display in a cloud. A cloud by day, a cloud of fire by night. And it says the glory of the Lord goes before the nation. It is the weight of the Lord. And it's beautiful. It is the weight of the Lord pulling them. The glory of the Lord has a gravitational pull in the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire that is pulling the people out of Egypt and into the promised land. And it lights their way at night. And God is demonstrating for them the weightiness, the heaviness of who he is. He cannot be ignored in his glory. But it's not just there. See, God throughout scripture unveils a little bit more Of his glorious presence with people in different stages. So we know at the very beginning, Adam and Eve, first two people, they're there in the garden walking and talking with God. And they're living in the presence of God. They're getting glimpses of the glory of God in a more regular sense before sin enters the world. But if we're gonna understand what glory means and the story of glory, we've gotta see that something was broken and ruptured there. Because part of glory is God's purity. And so the fall wrecks the ability for humans to interact perfectly with the purity and the holiness of God. So then God demonstrates his presence and glory in different ways throughout the Old Testament. God is present with Moses in a bush. God is present with the nation in the glorious cloud. And then God calls on the nation to build a temporary housing for his presence called the tabernacle. It is a large tent where they go and they worship, and the presence of God— the glory of God, the weight and the beauty of God literally dwells in the center of the camp. This is when Israel was in transition, moving from Egypt into the promised land, wandering in the promised land. There was a tent set up in the middle of the camp, and, Jesus, and, and God's presence literally dwelt in that tent. And then they moved in, and David said, God, we, we need to build you a permanent housing. And God said, not you, but your son Solomon. And you should read in 2 Chronicles where the glory of God fills the temple as Solomon gives this prayer of dedication. The glory of God enters in in 2 Chronicles 7 and the temple is filled with this blinding light and beauty and it's the same glory and weight that was in the pillar of cloud, that was in the pillar of fire, that dwelt in the tabernacle, now it's dwelling in the temple. But then Ezekiel sees the glory of God leave the temple generations later because the the people did not walk in faithfulness. And so then God continues his story. And I'm not saying that God is reacting to the people's failures. God has a plan from the very beginning, Father, Son, and Spirit, to display his glory and to be present with mankind, God's creation that he loves so dearly. So what was ruptured in the garden was displayed a partial a partial remedy was displayed in the nation of Israel. And it grew from a pillar that led them through the wilderness to the presence in the tabernacle, to the presence of the glory in the temple. And then the presence of the glory leaves the temple. And then on a hillside outside of Bethlehem, there's another bright shining light a few generations later where the angels show up to these shepherds. And they sing, Glory! Glory! To God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill to men. It's a new revelation. It's It's a sign for the shepherds and all the people. God's glory is about to be displayed in a new way. And all throughout the scriptural story, he's telling this Old to New Testament. One story, one focus, the glory of God displayed in Jesus, the presence of God displayed in the Spirit for our redemption, for our reunification with the presence of God for all eternity. That's the story God's telling here. And what God is doing is he's giving us a little bit of a different glimpse of his presence and power and glory all the way through. So Jesus is the new revelation where he's actually a human being that is God that comes to dwell in the presence of his people. But then Jesus, as he goes to the cross and as he is, he's resurrected, as he is ascended, he says, actually, guys, there's an even better story than this, because it's better for you that I go away. And then the glory of God comes in the spirit of God to dwell within believers, within sons and daughters of the king. And so to understand the glory of God is to understand the whole story of scripture, where in the end, Revelation 21 there is no more sun, moon, and stars to light, but actually, the glory of God in the eternal kingdom is the source of light for all people. And so, if we're going to understand glory, we understand, starting in the Old Testament, kabod, all about weight and heaviness. You cannot ignore the, great, the greatness, the grandeur, and the purity of who God is. Doxa, the New Testament word, the, the Greek word, doxa brings with it a little bit of a different emphasis than kabod. Doxa brings with it the purity of reputation, but also the idea of radiance. That that out of the center of God's glory radiates the beauty and the light of the glory of God. And so here's the thing. Glory is not a simple word. And so if you were going to understand, like, listen, I started out with how do you explain this to a seven-year-old? And I've completely muddied the waters and made it impossible to explain this to a seven-year-old. And I totally get that. But what I want you to see here is if you're going to translate and define the word glory, you need about eight different English words. You need the word light. You need the word weight. You need the word beauty. You need the word um, Uh, purity, you need holiness, you need all of that. And so the best I could do to give you a definition of glory is, is this, the enlightening beauty, meaning the beauty that brings light, right? The beauty that brings light and the weight of God's perfection, his moral perfection, his nature, his goodness, his loving kindness, and his mercy, and power all on display through his acts of creating the world and redeeming the world through his acts of creation and redemption, all for the purpose of making himself known so that he can be worshiped. That's as simple as I could get it, guys. Light, beauty, weight, purity wrapped up in the creation and redemption of God for the sake of worshiping him. So now we're ready. Let's see what Luke chapter 9, verse 28, has to say about glory. Eight days after these sayings. What sayings? Let's go back to next week, just real briefly. Uh, what we talked about last week, Jesus asked his disciples, who do the people say that I am? They say, well, some say Elijah. Some say John the Baptist. And they say, well, okay, Jesus said, okay. Well, who do you say I am? Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Good answer, Peter. And, and, but then from there, Jesus goes on to foretell his death. And then Jesus foretells their suffering. So Jesus says, it's good and right for you guys to know that I am the Messiah, I am the Son of God, but as you know that, you should also know, I'm going to die, you're going to suffer, let's all get ready for that. Okay, so eight days after that whole hard conversation, he took with him Peter, James, and John and went up on the mountain to pray. So, just three of them accompanying Jesus. Nine disciples, we'll talk about the other nine in a second here. Nine disciples don't go up the mountain, three go up the mountain. As he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered. His clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory. There it is the weight, the beauty, the light, the purity of God shining around these two mere men, Moses and Elijah. Spoiler alert, the vision's not about Moses and Elijah. It's about Jesus. But Moses and Elijah appeared in glory, and they spoke of Jesus's departure, which Jesus was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Verse 32, Peter and those who were with him, James and John, they were heavy with sleep. Listen, Luke says they missed half of, the, half of what was happening here. They slept through the first part, right? They went up on the mountain to pray with Jesus, which this happens again, the night of the crucifixion. They go up on the mountain to pray with Jesus. This, they go up on the mountain to pray with Jesus, and they fall asleep, and they wake up, and boom, Moses and Elijah are there. Jesus looks different than he did before. His clothes, I don't know what color they were before, but now they're bright, dazzling white, and there's glory shining all around. By the way, Peter, James, and John had never seen a picture of Moses and Elijah. I don't know how they knew, but boy, did they know. And maybe it's just a demonstration that when God's power is at work in people, people tend to recognize what's going on. And somehow they just knew that's Moses, that's Elijah, and that's Jesus. So, So here's what happens here. When they became fully awake, they saw his glory. So first it says Moses and Elijah are appearing in glory. But what really stuck out to them as they communicated their eyewitness account to Luke later, what really stuck out to them is not the glory of Moses and Elijah, but the glory of Jesus. That's what this is all about. They saw his glory in the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And Luke puts in this little statement, at not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. They kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. So here's Peter's response He's he's overwhelmed. And Peter responds as a human would. I got to do something about this. Isn't that what you would do? You'd be like, okay, this is Moses, Elijah, and Jesus. This is amazing. We've seen some pretty crazy stuff from Jesus. We've got to do something. And so Peter, in his human understanding, what his application was, let's build tents so that we can worship them. Go back, the tabernacle, right? Right? Or or the Feast of Booths from, from the Old Testament. Tents, booths are important in Hebrew religion. And so that's where you go into worship and to remember significant things. So he says, Moses gets a tent, Elijah gets a tent, Jesus gets a tent. What did he miss there? These three are not the same. You know, for any human rabbi, that would have been the most incredible compliment ever given. To say, wow. Jesus is now at an equal standing with Moses and Elijah. Can you believe it? Moses is there. You might ask the question, why Moses, why Elijah? why Elijah? Moses is there as a representation of the pillar of the law. Because Moses was the giver of the law. God gave the law to Moses, through Moses, to the people. Elijah was there representing the prophets, And all of Old Testament Hebrew religion hinged on the pillars of the law and the prophets. What do we know about God? What do we do in response to God? How do we worship God? How are we made right with God? It's all about the law and the prophets. Moses and Elijah are the two central figures. They're also significant because they didn't die traditional deaths. The story of Moses ends on Mount Nebo, just Moses and God. Moses dies on Mount Nebo and there's no grave anywhere to commemorate moses's death elijah's taken up in a chariot of fire into the very presence of god two incredible figures for the hebrews in their understanding of what it means to worship and follow god so these are like two pillars and peter's got to be thinking oh my goodness jesus is the messiah he he's up here with moses and elijah and luke puts in this editorial comment peter didn't know what he was talking about and i love that because he didn't Because what was the offense of what Peter said? Putting Jesus at the same level with Moses and Elijah. So Jesus doesn't answer Peter. Jesus doesn't respond. What happens? The cloud comes. Same cloud of glory that Moses would have recognized from following it through the wilderness. The same cloud of God's glory that was in front of the disciples actually enveloped the disciples to the point that they were afraid. And as they were enveloped with the glory of God and the cloud of God's glory, what happened is Moses and Elijah were just gone. And Jesus stood alone. And I think they got the message. Because from that point on, Look at, especially past cross and resurrection, they got the message. They weren't about following Moses and Elijah anymore. Jesus stood alone. Moses and Elijah were pillars on which their faith and their nation was built. But in the end, the cloud went through and Jesus stood alone. Jesus was the only way. The law was built up to build up Jesus. The prophets were there to speak and to proclaim Jesus. In the end, it was always all about Jesus. Everything Moses said, everything the prophets said, it was all pointing fully and ultimately towards Jesus as the fulfillment of every law in the Mosaic covenant and the fulfillment of every prophecy any of the prophets spoke, all found their yes in Jesus. And so what these three disciples are seeing became really clear as the cloud came and overshadowed them. This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And then they just walk down the mountain and they don't know what to do next. They don't even share about it right away. They just start walking down the mountain. That is God's glory on display to three human beings saying, this is what's coming next. You you get to peek in. You get to look behind the curtain a little bit earlier than everybody else to see the beauty of the glory, the weight, and the purity of God in Jesus. As he's not just a reflection. You remember when Moses walked down the mountain from Sinai. Moses his face was radiating when he came down. He had to veil his face because it was too bright for the people. What did Moses see? Moses saw the back end of God's glory. That's the way, that's the way Moses himself tells the story to us. That, that God's glory passed in front of Moses, and then Moses was able to look, and then the result was radiation, reflection of the glory of God. Uh, Jesus is not reflecting the glory of somebody else. Jesus is the source of the glory. Colossians tells us he is the image of the invisible God. He, he is the one that is the glory is not radiating, is not reflecting off of him, but radiating from him. He's different. He's better than Moses. Everything Moses wrote was fulfilled in Jesus. So that's the glory above. What about the glory below? So these four, Jesus, Peter, James, and John, they start walking down the mountain. This happened overnight. The very next day, they're walking down the mountain, and there's a commotion in the town. And now we start to hear what was happening to the other nine disciples while Jesus was with the three up on the mountain. It was the next day, verse 37, when they came down from the mountain, a great crowd met him, and behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, talking to Jesus, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him. He suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him. Think about that. Just, just. As a parent, as somebody who loves a child, as a grandparent, think about the description that he's given. Think about the emotion of the day. A spirit seizes my young child, and then my child suddenly cries out, and that spirit forces my child to convulse, and he foams at the mouth and shatters him. I don't even know what he means by that, but it doesn't sound good. It sounds excruciating. It sounds gut-wrenching. This is a man that is calling out in full desperation to Jesus. My young son is being shattered by this demon, and it just won't leave him alone. I begged your disciples, he says. I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Mark adds that there was an argument going on. Mark 9 tells the same story. Mark adds that the scribes were there, and they were causing a little bit of a ruckus because the scribes were arguing with the disciples. And so what happened, you get the image that Jesus and the three disciples are on the mountain. The other nine disciples are in the village and this man brings his son possessed by a demon, literally convulsing and shattering. He brings them to the nine disciples. They try to cast out the demon. The beginning of Luke chapter 9 shows they had already, the disciples that had already been sent out by Jesus, empowered by Jesus, and had cast out demons before. This was not their first demon, but they couldn't cast this one out. So then, this great ruckus, this, this great disturbance in the city came up, and there was arguing and shouting. And all the while, this man was so desperate, and the boy was being forgotten about in all of the arguing. And the man is desperate for somebody to help my son. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation. How long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. Think about Jesus. He just got a taste of home on the mountain. The fullness of the beauty of the presence of God. Jesus was at home with the Father, radiating the glory as he should have been, as he was for all eternity, as he is today. But he temporarily took off all of the beauty, of not all of it, but he took off some of the beauty of the glory in order to come to earth as a human, to come to earth as a, as a man, to be the perfect sacrifice. But he had just gotten a taste of home up on the mountain. And when he came down, he was immediately exasperated with the crowd, faithless, twisted. How long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. When he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground in front of Jesus and convulsed him. Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy, gave him back to his father, and all were astonished at the majesty of God. Let me give you a little secret here. The word for majesty is basically the same definition as the word for glory. What he's saying here is what Luke is trying to see, or trying to get us to see here, is that these two stories are connected. The glory that was demonstrated on the mountain in the presence of, of the three is now being demonstrated at the foot of the mountain in the presence of the crowd. This is the practical implication of the glorious power and beauty of who the Son of God is. He heals the sick, He heals the demons, He proclaims victory. And oh, by the way, it's kind of easy for him after how difficult it was for the disciples. But what do we take away from this? Well, Mark 9, again, helps us see this story even more clearly because Mark 9 brings in additional detail. Afterwards, the disciples are kind of distraught. They should be. What just happened? Why couldn't we cast this demon out? And Jesus says it like this. This kind only comes out through prayer. I don't know what was going on with the disciples, But I know that Jesus sent them out and empowered them, not with power that would be from them, but power that was from Jesus and from God the Father. And so I don't know how you get to the point where you're trying to attempt a demon exorcism without prayer. But that's what Jesus said they did. Jesus said the part you missed, you forgot to pray. The part you missed, you forgot to connect with the Father and call down the Father's power. You forgot... You forgot the source of your power in all of your efforts. That's why Jesus, the twisted and faithless, that wasn't just for the crowd. That was for the disciples that had failed to pray and failed to exercise faith. For us, maybe the application here is just really simple, that there are miracles waiting, that there is deliverance waiting. There is healing waiting. There there is restoration of relationships waiting. There are breakthroughs waiting if we would just Pray. The power of prayer was forgotten by Jesus' disciples from 9 1 until 9 37. Jesus commissioned them out and they healed and they cast out demons. And by the end of chapter 9, they had forgotten that they needed to connect with the Father and they needed to ask the Father, and the Father was the one that was ultimately enacting the power. How often do we try to solve our own problems? and just forget about connecting with the Father, connecting to the power of the Father, and giving our cares and our concerns to him. We just sung it. We say, I I lay it all on Jesus because of his steadfast love. But do we? Do we? As crisis adds to crisis in our day, as health crisis Political crisis, societal crisis, whatever family crisis you have, whatever work crisis you have, whatever personal crisis you have, whether it's of your own making or of somebody else's making, everybody's got a crisis. And what do we do about it? Do we attempt our own solutions, our own wisdom, our own good ideas, or do we get to our knees to pray? To pray for the breakthrough to come through the power of God, to pray for the healing, the restoration to come from the power of God and God alone. If nothing else, what Luke wants us to see here is the glory of God sends us to our knees to call out for God's power to be on display. Not our own wisdom and our own good ideas. We will not be able to fix our own problems. And the more you try, the worse you make it. Jesus... speaks very clearly. You have been faithless. You are twisted. But I'm still moving in power. I'm still moving in merciful love. But up on the mountain, God the Father spoke out of the cloud, and he said, this is my chosen one. This is my son. Listen to him. And then I think what Luke does here in the next few passages is he brings out key statements that Jesus is making to make sure that we listen in, in verse 43 and 44, they're still marveling at everything surrounding the healing of this boy that was possessed by a demon. And Jesus looks at him and says, let these words sink into your ears. God the Father had just said on the mountain, listen to him. And Jesus is saying, I hope these words sink in. But then it says, he says, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. He's saying, I'm going to suffer. But they did not understand this saying it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it and they were afraid to ask him about it and so this is what this is this interaction between Jesus and his followers you guys better get this let this sink in they didn't get it they had no idea what he was talking about and they were afraid to ask but i really believe that what god was doing there and what jesus was intentionally doing there is remember this saying obviously they remembered it they told luke what he said remember this saying you'll get it later He said, the son of man is going to be delivered over to men. The son of man is going to suffer, is going to die. Think about it. Remember it. You'll know what I mean later. And when you figure it out, you're going to be blown away by the purpose and plan. Listen to him. This kingdom is upside down, and the king leads the way into suffering. That's the message there. In the upside down kingdom, the king leads the way into suffering. Because victory comes through suffering. Conquest comes through suffering in God's kingdom. Next, in verse 46, he says, an argument arose among them in the same context of which of them was the greatest. Well, there were three up on the mountain experiencing the glory of God and nine that couldn't cast out a demon. I wonder how that conversation started. They were arguing about which one was the greatest. Who do you think thought they were the greatest? Probably not the nine that couldn't cast out the demon. Probably the three that got the special privileges up on the mountain. Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their heart, he took a child and he put him by his side. He said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. Whoever receives me receives him who sent me. He who is least among you is the one who is great. So remember, God, the Father, on on the mountain says, listen to him. Jesus says, I'm going to suffer. That's point number one. Point number two, my kingdom redefines greatness. In an upside down kingdom, receiving the youngest is most important receiving the most fragile is the most important standing up for those that are in need for those that are fragile for those that are weak is essential in the kingdom of god that's what he's saying as he brings that child but he also says something else it's not just most important but in this upside down kingdom the least becomes the greatest So, Peter, James, and John, whatever you guys are thinking, because you walked up to the mountain and you saw Moses and Elijah and you were in the big cloud and you got really afraid and you heard the voice of God, here's a little child and he's gonna be the greatest in my kingdom. Listen to him. Number three, listen to him about unity. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. Did he say he does not follow you? Did, did John say, Master, we tried to stop him because he does not follow you. No, no, no. He said, he's not one of us. But he is using the name of Jesus. That, that's important here, right? He said, Jesus, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. And we tried to stop him because he's not one of us. Jesus said to him, do not stop him. For the one who is not against you is for you. In this upside down kingdom, we do not bite and devour one another. We unite around the gospel of Jesus Christ. We experience the glory of God based on the shed blood of Jesus, so that we who have no righteousness of our own can be made right with God by receiving by grace through faith the offer of salvation made available at the cross and the empty tomb of, of substitution. Our sin for his righteousness, his death for our life. That is made possible, and that gospel brings us together. And so in Jesus's day, John was trying to divide over which group was following Jesus. And they were, both groups were proclaiming the name of Jesus. And church, we must be careful to unite around the right things, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and not divide over the wrong things. We proclaim Jesus of first importance. We unite around the gospel. We partner with others who preach the gospel. We care about right doctrine. I'm, I'm, I'm a doctrine guy. We care about right doctrine. We care about standing for the truth. But man, should we be careful about not biting and devouring other believers and standing in what Jesus is saying. That the one who is not against Jesus is not against us. The one who is not against us is for us, if he is for Jesus. So as others preach Jesus in different churches, different movements, different denominations, we celebrate in as much as they preach Jesus. We lift up the name of Jesus across, across different traditions, across different churches, for the sake of the unity of the body of Christ. Again, the Father standing on the mountain, listen to him. Listen to him about suffering, about what greatness looks like in the kingdom, and about what unity looks like in the kingdom. And then two stories at the end, and we'll close here. In verse 51, Jesus gets rejected. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. But he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set to Jerusalem. Again, James and John, the ones on the mountain, the leaders, the great ones. James and John saw it and said, Lord, should we go Sodom and Gomorrah on this nation, on this village? That's what they're saying. That's what they mean. He said, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven and consume them? Clearly an allusion to Sodom and Gomorrah and and God's judgment over Sodom and Gomorrah. And Jesus turned and rebuked who? He rebuked James and John. He didn't rebuke the Samaritans. He turned and rebuked James and John and they went on to another village. Why? Because sometimes God's mercy is uncomfortable in this upside-down kingdom. We might have our expectations of how God's going to work. We know that God is full of justice. We don't doubt that at all. We know that God judges sinners, and we know that God will judge all sinners in the end, and God will be merciful to his children that accept him and receive him for salvation. But we don't know when that day is, and we are not those that are interact with the judgment over, over the sinners. We are those that proclaim mercy to sinners, and God, the great judge, decides when he's going to enact the justice. So the lesson for James and John, the rebuking that James and John receive, is I'm not finished with this village yet. James and John were then in the room when he says, you will be my witnesses in Judea and in all Samaria and to the othermost parts of the earth. It was not long after this. James and John wanted to call down fire. Don't lose this. James and John were ready to call down fire on this village. And they, along with the rest of the disciples, were later commissioned back to that same area to present the gospel. It wasn't time for that village to receive redemption yet. But there were some that would receive redemption, that would respond when God was ready to unleash his power and his presence and his salvation there. So there's a cost of not listening, and we get to miss out on the beauty of his mercy. There's also a cost of listening, but it's still worth it. Verse 57, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And to another he said, follow me. But this person said, Lord, let me go and bury my father first. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their dead. As for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. The cost of not listening is missing out on the uncomfortable mercy, on the mercy that is more than we can imagine. That's what James and John learned at the Samaritan village. The cost of listening is homelessness. That you will be continually reminded, if you really follow Jesus, that this world is not your home. That this life is not full of comfort. That whatever culture or society you live in may be better or worse than others, but is not your home. No society in the history of this earth has ever been full of the beauty of the kingdom of God. And yeah, there's better and worse cultures and societies, but Christians of every generation need to know, we're not at home here. We're meant to be uncomfortable. The Son of Man didn't have a place to lay his head, and so we should not be fighting for our comforts first, but fighting again for the glory of the gospel first and enduring uncomfort because we know that is in fact what he's called us to. If you don't listen, you miss out on his mercy. If you do listen, you embrace homelessness. You embrace sacrifice. You embrace an uncomfortable level of sacrifice. So we're going to close today singing of his glory, but I want to leave you with a couple of thoughts. The team can go ahead and make their way up here. We'll sing of the worth, the glory, the beauty of God, of Christ the Son. But I have a couple questions. Have you really ever been in awe of the weight, of the beauty, and the light of God's glory? If not, I, w- I would really encourage you to think through what it is that he has done for you, what he has done in history, what he has done for all mankind. And let's let ourselves be stunned, astonished by the majesty as the people of the foot of the mountain were. Let us not be like the disciples and be prayerless, but let us be prayerful in the midst of all of the challenges that we face. May we listen to the Son and ask Him as we sing. Ask Him as we sing and proclaim His worth. Father, where? Where are you leading me? Where do you want me to be listening more than I am? Because I don't want to be I don't want to be like the Samaritan village. I don't want to be like James and John. I don't want to be those that don't listen to you. But ask him today, where are you leading me? Where are you pushing my heart and my mind to follow you more fully? Because Jesus, the great glorious king, has a mission for all of us as his ambassadors to proclaim his gospel and proclaim his worth. So this morning we stand and sing and we will proclaim his worth. But as we're commissioned out today, we're going out into a world that is not our home to proclaim the beauty of the gospel to those that don't yet know his worth. Stand and sing with us.
1: Do you feel the world is broken? We do. Do you feel the shadows deepen? We do. Do you know that all the dark stop the life from getting through we do do you wish that you could see it all made new? we do is all creation groaning it is is a new creation coming it is is the glory of the lord to be the light within our midst it is is it good that we remind ourselves of this it is our God intend to dwell again with us.
0: standing we'll receive the blessing of the lord as we go the lord bless you and keep you the lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you the lord lift up his countenance his very presence and glory the lord lift up his countenance upon you and bring you peace amen go in peace